from Brown Cow Studios in Montana, this is News Nerds, the news podcast. The inauguration, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris make history today as Kamala Harris becomes the first woman and first black woman to become the vice president and Joe Biden inherits a country that has a pandemic raging through it and a time of unrest. We'll have a special report on the inauguration and Emily Suica from the Morse Museum in Winter Park, Florida. She talks to me about the museum and how it's adapted in COVID-19. And the news nerds geographical location challenge. We'll have updates there. Also, I played the clarinet. All this and more on this week's episode of News Nerds. I'm Ezra Graham. of the host and creator of the popular kids' television program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, has died at the age of 92. The death of Joanne Rogers was announced by Fred Rogers Productions, which contributes to Mr. Rogers' legacy by producing kids' productions on television. Mrs. Rogers helped Fred Rogers create his popular television programs and even worked with voice acting on Mr. Rogers' past program, The Children's Corner a production that was on TV for seven years from 1954 to 1961. Joanne Rogers later inspired parts of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, including the character Queen Sarah. Fred and Joanne met at Rollins College, coincidentally the same college that the Morse Museum was once located. They both had a passion for playing piano. Joanne received a bachelor's degree at Rollins for piano performance, Later, she married Mr. Rogers in 1952, a year after he got a job at NBC. While her husband was recording television programs, she could be found playing the piano. Mrs. Rogers began to perform piano concerts in the 70s up until five years ago. After Mr. Rogers' death because of stomach cancer in 2003, Mrs. Rogers assumed a role in the neighborhood. She was seen in the 2018 documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor?, and she was delighted when Tom Hanks portrayed Mr. Rogers in the 2019 movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Marianne Plunkett was Joanne in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. While Joanne Rogers has died, the long-lasting legacy of her and her husband still lives on. for the News Nerds musical segment, and you know what that means? That means... Yes, that is a sound of the clarinet, and I have been slowly but surely learning the clarinet, and I'm going to play for you two Christmas-themed pieces of music, and I am like about one month behind on my clarinet playing, so I'm still playing Christmas music. So first, King Wenceslas. Did I say that right? I don't know. Next is Jolly Old St. Nicholas. Mm-hmm. 
to learn the NPR All Things Considered jingle. From NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro, and I'm Artie Cornish. The news is next. Today, President Joe Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris made history. Kamala Harris is the first person of color to be vice president and the first woman to be vice president. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were inaugurated at about 12 Eastern time today at the Capitol building. Kamala Harris was sworn in by Supreme Court Justice Sonia Sotomayor, and Joe Biden was sworn in by Chief Justice John Roberts. While some of the traditional inaugural Festivities were canceled due to the pandemic, including the inaugural ball. The traditional inaugural address was still held. In the speech, Mr. Biden said that this, quote, is America's day and that democracy has prevailed. Biden repeatedly called for unity in his address. That was the overarching theme in his speech. Let's take a listen to a part, to a part of his address. Chief Justice Roberts, Vice President Harris, Speaker Pelosi, Leader Schumer, Leader McConnell, Vice President Pence, my uh, distinguished guests, my fellow Americans. This is America's day. This is democracy's day. A day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. Through a crucible for the ages, America has been tested anew, and America has risen to the challenge. Today, we celebrate the triumph not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The people, the will of the people has been heard, and the will of the people has been heeded. We've learned again that democracy is precious, Democracy is fragile. And at this hour, my friends, democracy has prevailed. So now, on this hallowed ground where just a few days ago, violence sought to shake the Capitol's very foundation, we come together as one nation, under God, indivisible, to carry out the peaceful transfer of power as we have for more than two centuries. As we look ahead in our uniquely American way, restless, bold, optimistic, and set our sights on the nation we know we can be and we must be. I thank my predecessors of both parties for their presence here today. I thank them from the bottom of my heart. And I know And I know the resilience of our Constitution and the strength, the strength of our nation, as does President Carter, who I spoke with last night, who cannot be with us today, but whom we salute for his lifetime and service. I've just taken the sacred oath each of those patriots 
have taken the oath first sworn by George Washington. But the American story depends not on any one of us, not on some of us, but on all of us, on we, the people, who seek a more perfect union. That was Joe Biden in his inaugural address. Meanwhile, hours before Biden was inaugurated, the former president, Donald Trump, and his wife, Melania Trump, headed to their Mar-a-Lago resort in Florida. Trump is the first president in modern history not to attend the incoming president's inauguration. Mike Pence, Donald Trump's vice president, did attend, however. An impeachment of Donald Trump will take place in the Senate a few days from now following the violent riots at the Capitol on January 6th. The inauguration was sprinkled with short performances from celebrities like Lady Gaga, Jennifer Lopez, and Garth Brooks. Let's hear the performance by Lady Gaga. She sang the national anthem. That was Lady Gaga singing the Star-Spangled Banner, the U.S.'s national anthem. Now that Joe Biden has assumed the office of the presidency, he has work to do. With the pandemic raging across America, the pandemic that has taken over 400,000 American lives so far, Joe Biden will have a lot to do. On his first day in office, Biden has already signed 17 executive orders. These include making masks required on federal property and rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, which Trump left. The 15 other executive orders aim to eradicate the Keystone XL pipeline, parts of which are here in Montana. Biden also signed an executive order to protect DACA, or the Defense Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, and signed an order that would formally make the United States a member of the WHO, which Trump withdrew from, justifying his actions with the explanation 
that the WHO gives too many benefits to China, a nation that Trump has blamed many things on in the last few months and in his presidency overall. President Joe Biden is also asking every American to join him in what he calls the 100-day masking challenge, a challenge that asks every American to wear a mask to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Biden is working to undo many laws and orders made by President Trump. These orders continue with Biden's message of unity. In his remarks at the Capitol building today, he said, quote, Much to repair, much to restore, much to heal, much to build, and much to gain. Unquote. My guest this week is Emily Suica. She is from the Charles Hosmore Morse Museum in Winter Park, Florida. We talk about COVID restrictions in the area and how the Morse Museum has adapted, the history of the Morse Museum, and more. I first asked her about the history of the Morse Museum in Winter Park. So the Morse Museum was originally founded as the Morse Gallery um, on the campus of Rollins College here in Winter Park. It's a small liberal arts college that has been here for a very long time. It's a Spanish style college, it's beautiful. But a woman by the name at the time of Jeanette Genius uh, founded the Morse Gallery on the campus in 1942. Uh, and the reason that she did that was she was a great admirer of art. She was educated in the arts and she felt as though this community, the Winter Park community that she spent a lot of time in as a child with her grandfather, Charles Hosmer Morse. Um, she felt an affinity for the community and she wanted it to have a world-class arts institution. And at the time, of course, that was just um, her collecting and using um, different objects that were also in traveling exhibitions at the time to bring different influences and different kinds of art um, and just kind of have this rich arts source in the community, um, just giving back. And it was, of course, 1942, we're talking uh, in the throngs of World War II. So um, that might have been something as, as, as essentially having people be exposed to the arts, that might have been a secondary sort of priority, but for her it was something that was uplifting, um, it was something that uh, really gave people a more worldly view, and it was something that she felt as though this community deserved um, for itself. So she started the museum there, but she hired um, the president of the art department at Rollins, his name was Hugh McCain, and she hired him as the first director of the museum at the time. And they would curate and put on exhibitions, they would uh, acquire different objects, and they would also um, speak with world leaders and notable people. They were in very well-to-do social circles and they got uh, different politicians, they had diplomats come in, and they were um, not only creating this 
institution for art, but they were also uh, bringing in inspirational people and people um, who could also mingle with the community and be, in, be able to interact with this art and be able to bring something more here. Um, actually, later on, a couple of years later, Hugh McCain and Jeanette got married. So Jeanette became Jeanette Genius McCain. Um, and they ended up running the uh, museum together throughout the rest of their lives, um, amongst doing other things. Hugh McCain was the president of Rollins College for a time. Um, and they also participated in a lot of uh, philanthropy in the area. Um, but primarily what they were doing was creating this institution that would outlive them and would be able to benefit the community um, past the time when they were, they were here. So that's kind of the beginning of the um, museum. And the most important parts about that is it was built, the collection was built uh, later on with the Tiffany, uh, and that's kind of a later development, but it originally started on the campus and it was named after her um, grandfather, Charles Hosmer Morse. If I were to go to the museum, what kind of art would I see as I walk through? Mm -hmm. um, everything. That is one of the most beautiful parts about the museum. So we are known for housing the world's most comprehensive collection of works by Louis Comfort Tiffany, but we are also known as a late 19th century, early 20th century American decorative arts museum. Um, so we have everything from painting, ceramics, stained glass. We of course have an array of Tiffany's lamps. We have his complete 1893 chapel interior that was from the World's Columbian Exposition. And that was reinstalled at the, or that was installed at the museum in its entirety after it was uh, conserved on the current campus of the museum. Um, so the museum has actually been in three different places. It was on Rollins's campus, then it was on a place called Wellburn Avenue, and now it's on Park Avenue in the heart of Winter Park. What makes the Morris Museum stand out against other museums around the area? When it comes to the Morse Museum, I know that a lot of people are curious about where we get our objects from. Uh, and we actually take them all from our own collection. We don't take in traveling exhibitions. We don't take in traveling objects. It is everything that the McCain's built. And it's all the Art Nouveau works that they got to contextualize Tiffany. It's all the um, arts and crafts works they got um, to contextualize that art movement. Um, and so, we are able to essentially host everything at, from our own collection in our museum. So you can't ever see any of these objects. Now, mind you, sometimes like for the Driehaus in, in Chicago, they had an exhibit and they needed some work that supported a different part of their exhibition about the Tiffany Chapel. And so we lended that to them. And of course the Met, everybody knows that they have the uh, view of Oyster Bay window in their American wing. And that is on permanent loan to the Met. And it actually came here at one point, which is really beautiful. I, I wish I could have seen it. Uh, I wasn't here at the time, but basically we take everything from our own collection. So whatever you see at our museum, you can never see anywhere else. Um, and so that makes it special in one way, but also the museums in the area, they're all very different. Uh, their subject matter and the different time periods that they address are almost wholly different from ours. The Cornell, for instance, on the campus of Rollins College now in the former space that was the Morse Gallery, um, they have a lot of contemporary works. They have a lot of they have a lot of exhibits that relate to certain political events, certain current events. So when you come to the Morse, you're going to just see something very different. And you're also going to see something very singular. Uh, so I would just 
in not comparing them or which is better, which is stands out more, but essentially if you're looking for something of complete and utter uniqueness, you, you come to the Moors. So how does the museum choose which pieces of art to put on display to the public? So that is actually up to our mastermind, Jennifer Thalheimer. She is our curator and collection manager at the museum. She is amazing at what she does. Uh, and to an extent as well, we all kind of pitch into what the end, the end result of the exhibition looks like. Now, when it comes to what kind of exhibition is being put on, what objects, it is in her, it is in her ballpark, but when it comes to perhaps wall colors or lighting, um, our executive director, uh, Lawrence Ruggiero, he is the one who kind of has the eye for that. Um, and he's the other mastermind in the project. I'm the voice box uh, and we kind of work as a team, as a unit, but I would say that if you are looking for the person or the uh, brain behind the operation, the brains behind the picking of the objects. It's just Jennifer's a genius. <laughs> so what has, what is, what does a normal day at the Morse Museum look like now in COVID? Because that must have been, uh, especially with the new restrictions all over the country, that must have been a setback. Mm -hmm. So, our galleries, we are actually a very small museum uh, when you look at other museums, uh, comparably, I guess you'd say. So we have very intimate galleries, which means, of course, social distancing is a bit of a challenge. Orange County still has a mask mandate in place, um, so people are required to wear masks, um, but we allow five people in every 15 minutes. We actually implemented a um, advanced ticketing system, which we had had in the works prior um, to the pandemic, but of course it just kind of expedited uh, getting that operational as soon as possible. And so you essentially would come into the museum, um, you'd still speak with our amazing and uh, wonderful uh, visitor services staff, just the kindest, kindest people. Um, and they will tell you exactly what you need to know. Normally, of course, we would have a video room set up so you could go in and watch videos about the history of the museum and the restoration of the chapel. Um, but that's not currently available. It's online. So we highly encourage people to watch it before they come in. It kind of gives you a holistic sense of the museum kind of before you get there so you can have a broad sense and then see the specific objects and the specific exhibitions. But it would be much of the same, just a lot less people. Um, and right now it's very quiet. Um, we like to say that the museum is a respite from the world where you can just experience beauty um, and kind of uninterrupted by the stresses and the everyday sort of uh, burdens that one might bear. They can just spend some time with art and these, these beautiful glass works and just Tiffany's vision. And so it's still, I would just say it's a more quiet version of what you would normally get. And of course you're wearing a mask. And you can feel very safe as well. We have hand sanitizer stations all over the museum, a preset sort of route. So essentially you, there's only two doors. There's where you go in and where you go out um, rather than the dual door system we used to have, um, which is just a temporary thing for right now. So it would be a lot of the same. And honestly, it would just kind of be even more peaceful than it would normally be, except you're wearing a mask. <laughs> 
has the museum or any of its services had to go online to morrismuseum.org during the pandemic? Last fall, we opened uh, Tiffany's Fireplace Hood. So in 2019, there was an object that showed up at the TAFA Fair in New York. Um, and it was an object that our Curian collection manager knew existed. She didn't know that it survived um, the fire that consumed uh, Tiffany's estate in 1957. So she thought it was gone. She thought it had perished. And she decided, or she found out, she was told that this object was coming up on view um, by Lillian Nassau uh, in New York. And so she went to see it. And it was a phenomenal work. Uh, it was fantastic. Uh, and we brought it in and we had it um, photographed on every side. Uh, we had a video made of it. Um, and this was all in order to, I am gushing, I am boasting a tiny bit um, about this, this amazing, like phenomenal, I mean, out of this world uh, piece that we acquired. But the beauty of it was that we were able to still share it with people. Now, I would highly encourage people to come see it for themselves because it really isn't done justice unless you see it in person. That was actually what our um, what Jen, what our curator and collection manager said. She went up to New York to see it, and it was just it blew her away. But in its stead, so we had a virtual opening last year. So that was one of the things that we had to do to accommodate the new conditions. We couldn't have the the opening that we normally would, where we'd invite as many people to come and see it and to see the mica panels and the iron work and the amazing display. Um, so we we are doing things like that for the exhibition so that people can get a taste. And this was a slightly more extravagant one um, because of the gravity of the new installation. Um, and it's also on permanent view. So if anybody hears this anytime, it will always be there <laughs> as long as the Morse is there. But we've also moved a lot of our educational programs online. Uh, we have member programs that have been moved online. Um, we have um, video programs that we actually stream online. They're called our brown bag matinees. They happen three times a year. So we've had to change to streaming services um, so that people can watch from their homes. Normally people would bring a bag lunch, so we can't do that, but we've moved that online. Um, and in addition to that, we launched a two new things. Uh, we launched our museum store, our museum shop online, which again had been something in the works for a while, but we were able to get it up and running due to the current circumstances. So now people can shop from, from anywhere, which might not sound like the biggest deal, but people really want certain things and they can't always come to Winter Park to get them. Um, and then we also have our um, Create and Explore page, uh, which is where our education staff puts up um, activities and things that would have been for Family Wednesdays at the museum. I think the next one that we're going to, or that's going to be uploaded is going to be in May. Um, so people can take those home with them and they can uh, do the activities that they would otherwise have done in the museum at home. So we have pivoted. Uh, I've heard, I'm sure you've heard that word several times. We have pivoted in many ways um, online so that people can still experience the museum and, and still have the exposure to our collection and so that we can still share because that's, again, what we're here for. So well, thank you, Emily, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Ezra. This was actually, this was a pleasure. And um, I am still so impressed that the museum or information about the museum has disseminated so far.
I'm delighted to be here. That was Emily Suica. She is the Director of Community Relations at the Charles Hosmer Morse Museum in Florida. Let's now go to the News Nerds Geographical Location Challenge where we check in where everybody is listening in from. With first place this week in our international contest is the United States with 96% of all News Nerds listeners. Second place goes to Norway with 2%. The following countries all have less than 1% of News Nerds listeners. Australia, Canada, the United Kingdom, Bosnia and Herzegovina, France, the Philippines, Switzerland, and for the first time, Germany. Now let's go to our United States challenge. With first place, we have Virginia, 16% of all news nerds listeners. Second place is Ohio with 11%. And third place, three runners-up, Washington, California, and Connecticut. Connecticut is climbing its way back up to number one. And maybe it will take first place from Virginia. Let's see what happens. Uh, well, that's it for this geographical location challenge. Hey, News Nerds listeners, if you haven't subscribed to our email list, please head over to newsnerdshost.weeksite.com slash podcast and do so. It's the subscribe free link on the webpage. You can also subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And when you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a review. We are at an all-time high for listenership, and I'd like to keep it that way. So please tell a friend about News Nerds and continue to listen by yourself. Thank you so much to every listener that is listening to this week's episode. Now let's go to my interview with former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez. That's it for this week's episode of News Nerds. My guest this week was Emily Suica. She is from the Charles Hosmer Morse Museum in Winter Park, Florida. The Charles Hosmer Morse Museum can be found on the web at morsemuseum.org or on social media. I'm Ezra Ram. I was your host for this week's episode. You can find News Nerds on the web at newsnerdshost.wixsite.com slash podcast. There you can listen to past episodes of News Nerds, Cow Pies, and other News Nerds extras, as well as subscribe to our mailing list. That way you get emails whenever we publish a new episode, and you're always the first to know. You can listen to News Nerds on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. And while you're on those three sites, please subscribe there. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It really does help our ratings. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with another informative episode. Until then, bye-bye.